Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Food and food choice really do impact things like depression risk. They do inflict, impact things like inflammation, which we know directly correlate with things like depression and dementia. And, and to really help patients add, add this idea and this way of thinking is a way of empowering them. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast with me, your host, Dr. Rupi, where we discuss the most important topics and concepts in the medicinal qualities of food and lifestyle. This podcast is the place to be for anything to do with nutritional medicine and how we can use both food and lifestyle to prevent and manage ill health, as well as maintaining your optimal well-being. My guest today is the wonderful Drew Ramsey, who is a leading innovator in mental health, combining clinical excellence, nutritional interventions, and creative media. He is an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons and in active clinical practice in New York City, which is where we had to do a Skype interview for um, our podcast today, because unfortunately he wasn't in the UK. As you can probably tell during the podcast, we really get on. Like I do see him as someone I, it feels like I've known him for, for many years. And when you get to the end of the podcast, you can see it kind of just disintegrates and, and us just having a back and forth and a bit of banter. Um, his work has been featured by the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, The Lancet Psychiatry, The Today Show, BBC. He's been named the Kale Evangelist. Uh, he's given two TEDx talks. And the reason why, actually, to go back to Kale, um, that he's the Kale Evangelist is that he actually was able to create a National Kale Day in uh, America, which is quite some feat. Uh, his, uh, his latest book, Eat Complete, uh, talks about the 21 nutrients that fuel brain power and um, transform your, your mental health. Um, his, his first book was called The Happiness Diet that he talks about. All of them are absolutely fantastic. I've currently got um, uh, Eat Complete, uh, which I'm making my way through at the moment. He's also got an e-course, Eat to Beat Depression, which helps people maximize their brain health with every bite. 
and he's on the advisory board at Men's Health uh, and a, a couple other psychiatry journals as well. Um, he's a real powerhouse of knowledge and so, so humble with it as well. I mean, just reading his accolades, you know, if I didn't know him, I'd be pretty scared to interview him. But as you'll tell during this pod, uh, he's just such a lovable, humble person. Um, today's topics, well, we talk about, about his background, what his clinical practice looks like, what nutritional psychiatry means to him and actually how he practices it with patients. Um, and we go into some of the patient experiences that he's had as well. Um, we touched briefly on omega-3 fatty acids and uh, supplementation and his views on supplementation. Um, the 21 nu- nutrients of transformation, we didn't go through all of that but um, it's all in his book. Um, We do talk a little bit about inflammation as a causal uh, part of depression and actually how we don't want to slip into the reductionist fallacy of depression being just a neurochemical imbalance. I think it's really, really important to to recognize that this is a multimodal disease. And by that, I mean, there are multiple different ways in which depression um, uh, presents in different people. Um, and the way we treat it can be vastly different. Um, I also really like uh, Drew's take on mental health being something that everybody deals with, which is why he is such an advocate for looking after your mental health before it becomes an issue. We all have to think about mental health in the same way we look at cardiovascular disease in preventative uh, measures. Remember, you can find all of this information and more at thedoctorskitchen.com. Subscribe to the newsletter for weekly science-based recipes. Please give this podcast a five-star review if you found it helpful. It really does help spread the message. And we're going to be uh, posting a uh, discount code for E2B Depression, the e-course that Drew Ramsey has got on his website on thedoctorskitchen.com in the podcast show notes. So make sure you check those out. Drew, thank you so much for making the time. I know we have to do this via Skype and I would have loved to have had you in the kitchen and cook you something from one of your incredible recipes in your latest book, (laughs) which I absolutely love. Um, But until the next time I'm either in your part of the way, uh, part of the world, or you're in the UK, um, we're going to have to reserve that for another time. Well, Rupi, I'll take you up on your invitation to cook me some recipes from my book. I love that. That sounds like a lovely <laughs> evening. And uh, I look forward to getting into the kitchen with you. It's something I really uh, like about you and uh, admire about your work is how much time we get to see you in the kitchen. You've definitely influenced how I cook more spices more chickpeas you know stuff that uh i really just i love what i love what you bring to the table thank you man and i i I did actually uh get the opportunity to cook you when we first met for the first time i've been following you for for a while now but we met at chef belay's restaurant when i was doing an event um and uh we organized all the, the menu and stuff and we were sat opposite each other drinking some delicious wine that was that was a good night. We get, it's it's. Uh, I mean, since we're both physicians and we're both deep in the food as medicine world, and it, and we both love to cook, it was really that was a that was a really nice treat because also you know following you to to really have that be a first night for us to get to know each other and hang out and uh, I really uh, I enjoyed that. Chef Chef Boulet creates great great relationships and great synergies. So I'm looking forward to our next time we're there together too.
Yeah, definitely, man. And that, that like sort of connection you have over food as well. And that's why I'm a, a massive fan. So um, why don't you take us back? Because for, for, for my listening audience, you may not be aware of you, even though you've got TED Talks and a couple of books out and you've got you're crushing it with the, the stuff that you're doing with the American Physicians Association, um, Psychiatrists Association. Um, tell me about your journey toward food and your love of food, in particular, kale. Well, so kale and all leafy greens, you know, I'm a, I'm a equal, equal representative now for the food category leafy greens. Don't tell the kale mafia. So, hey, everybody, it's, it's a real treat to, to be speaking to you all. And um, so, yeah, I'm Drew. I'm a psychiatrist. And I, I mean, the food story starts with me that when I was really young, I was about six, my parents got in America, we had this back to the land movement. And this is kind of, it's happening now again as people are more interested in farms and farmings, but kind of the extended version of the hippie movement in America had a lot of people who were thinking about homesteading again. Uh, the whole Rodale family had, had kind of come out with the notion of organic farming, and getting back to our roots and putting up our food. And my parents really got swept up into that and moved from Long Island to really rural Indiana. Um, and it's actually where uh, I moved back in with them, my, my wife and our kids and I did about uh, three years ago. Um, but that's where I'm from. And they moved out there with the real intention to grow more of their food, to be closer to the natural cycle of the earth, to really live in a way that is, you know, now we're understanding really aligned with the values we're pushing in medicine and in lifestyle medicine, to, to sleep with the natural rhythm of nature and to swim in their pond in the front of their house and raise a lot of their food and have their, you know, kid race around outside a lot, which is what we did. And so I spent a lot of time as a young kid gardening and, and eating our own tomato sauce and, um, and really, um, in my personal life, food has always been very important. I was a vegetarian and uh, when I became 20 as part of that, you know, kind of low-fat, low-cholesterol movement. And so it was really, yeah. you know, focused on what I was eating. And then during residency is that omega-3 data was coming out. I, I did my psychiatry residency at Columbia University, really amazing place to train. One would argue one of the top places in, 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 in the world to really learn about psychiatry. And there there Absolutely. wasn't... There wasn't really a focus at all on, of course, you know, food, it, um, but it just kind of struck me. The omega-3 data started coming out. Remember, there was that big, uh, big study that came out showing there was a correlation between fish intake and the national risk of bipolar disorder. There were a couple initial trials of omega-3 fats using, being used to um, augment antidepressants. There's um, you know, some, some epidemiological data suggesting omega-3 fats related to depression and dementia in some way. And I kind of got that question, like sometimes we get as physicians, like I was like, where do those come from, those omega-3 fats? And realized like, I, I didn't really know. It was like fish oil. I'm like, well, what, what's in there? And you know, it looked like, okay, it's, it's made of EPA and DHA. And it's like, well, what do those do in the body? And it just kind of opened up my mind to several things. One, I was still a vegetarian at the time that I wasn't eating any seafood. And the other was just, how little I knew about this aspect of my patients' lives. And, and that's really where my food journey in this form has taken off over the past, let's say, 10 years with my first book, The Happiness Diet, and then really working hard to just know my patients as eaters 
and to know them in a in a much more intimate way as an eater than than I had really ever conceived of. Yeah, well, it's it's amazing um, the omega three stuff that came out actually, and it's still ongoing. I just had a lecture actually uh, during my master's um, program in nutritional medicine, where we had a psychiatrist um, who's definitely of your way of thinking, who is certainly recommending to certain patients that omega three supplementation. Um, would be beneficial um, and there's a, there's a whole bunch of evidence around why uh, what the mechanisms of action are for long chain omega-3 fatty acids and as you said as a vegetarian you know unless you're taking algae supplementation it would be quite hard to get it into your into your diet well that's also as physicians and as researchers how it begins to get approached right of like can we supplement it that's what you know obviously we're going to do the the, the what we feel are higher tri- quality trials because we can placebo control them and um, and, and, you know, can we augment it and can we treat patients that way? And really what food has led me into is this realization that in mental health, we've not, we've really let the public down and let ourselves down, that we haven't gotten involved with people before they're ill ever. There is no prevention in psychiatry. You never want to meet me as a psychiatrist. You never want to tell anybody you see a psychiatrist and you're going to wait until you're really, really ill. And, and what's really opened my mind, uh, and give me a lot of hope is a notion that it, by being involved with food and, and linking mental health to brain health, we can get involved with the public in a much more preventative way. And that that's really where food, it, it, you know, it's, it, I'm excited about the data and we'll talk about some of the data. There's been really great science. But to me, the real promise is in getting the public thinking about their brain and their brain health and their emotional health and, and thinking that there are a set of tools. Food is obviously just one of those tools, but there's a set of tools that by making better decisions and different decisions every day, you can influence your mental health and emotional health and your brain health. And that to me just, that's gotten me really juiced up. Absolutely, yeah. And and the more you learn about it as a physician, the more you actually want to entertain giving, you know, uh, open-minded, honest uh, advice to patients who really need it. Um, And on that note, I, I, I wanted to just ask you about what your current clinical practice uh, looks like and the conditions that you see um, because you work in both uh, Indiana and in New York as well and you're you're seeing like a a really uh, a a real um, array of different sort of clinical presentations. Yeah um, well so I began my work actually in community mental health and one of the things that got me into food maybe I should include this in my food story is the atypical antipsychotics these are medicines like aripiprazole and olanzapine uh, quetiapine they're atypically were a new generation of medications used for psychotic disorders like uh, schizophrenia and they were very effective clinically and really devastating in terms of side effects that patients began to develop metabolic syndrome. So patients would gain 20, 30, 40 pounds, they'd be sedated, they'd get high blood sugar, dyslipidemia, high, and begin to get, you know, first we called it syndrome X, but then we now call it metabolic syndrome. And, and that just really uh, concerned me, this notion that I was giving patients something that helps them, but also in terms of their long-term health trajectory was just a, a tragedy. Um, uh, so today, uh, I am mostly in private practice in New York. We have a, a small team here. I have a, a wonderful health coach and, and therapist, psychotherapist, and chef, all, all in one person, Samantha El Creef, who has really expanded my practice and giving me that, you know, I'm a doc who likes food and I, I know some things about nutrition, but Samantha's a real, I call her the food fairy. She's really skilled in the application of 
you know, you need a little za'atar spice in your life, or, you know, you're way too worried about chickpeas. Have you tried this other, it's just really wonderful ideas around food and around what's really become central to our practice. We're, we, we're a general psychiatric practice, so we see patients mainly for, with depressive and mood disorders, some bipolar disorder, and anxiety disorders. Um, but what probably sets us apart, makes us a little odd, is that we want to know about patients as an eater. When you meet us in an evaluation, you'll, you'll, we'll ask the question all shrinks ask, but we also want to hear about your relationship with food. And, and particularly what I'm listening for as a psychiatrist is how you think about your own nourishment and how you derive joy from self-nourishment and nourishment of other people. And, and, and whether you do derive joy, because so many people have this very uh, conflictual relationship with food. People have a lot of conflicts about food, and this is where I've really enjoyed marrying up my psychiatrist hat of thinking about conflicts and motivations and really the foundations of who we are and how we think about ourselves with this new nutritional knowledge that's coming out that that food and food choice really do impact things like depression risk they do inflict impact things like inflammation which we know directly correlate with things like depression and dementia and, and to really help patients add add this idea and this way of thinking as a way of empowering them because you know psychiatric care in some ways is very disempowering it's it's me the expert who knows a lot about the deep workings of your unconscious and over years things will happen and you'll you know change i love psychotherapy i do a lot of it i've been in a lot of it but that that's a long term process that isn't in some ways empowering right away medications very empowering in terms of they help patients with symptoms but people generally tend not to like them feeling very stigmatized about taking them so this idea that there's these things that you can do that you own your food your exercise your sleep hygiene practice i really like that is is a way of empowering patients wow there's so much that i want to pick up on there like you, first of all your practice sounds incredibly utopian i mean it's brilliant that you have a collection of both the physician but also chefs and um, psychotherapists that can really give that overview that real holistic uh, treatment package but also the last point about um, giving patients that control back because i think particularly in medicine when things are outside your locus of control it really um, degrades at your identity as being able to do anything for yourself and you are completely reliant um, on external factors to better yourself. And that is really like, it's, it's, uh, it, it gives you a lot of embarrassment. I mean, I, I, I know of this from personal experience when I had my heart issues and I was reliant on antiarrhythmic medication. I was reliant on my cardiologist to perform electrophysiology studies to find out what the heck was going on. And it's, it's embarrassing as being a patient and it's incredibly vulnerable as well. You feel incredibly um, disen, disempowered to do anything about it. And lifestyle in and itself, I mean, it's not a cure or it's not a panacea, but it offers that real uh, genuine attempt for a patient to actually do something for themselves. Well, I think that's, that's what, we, I what think. we hope for in healthcare. I mean, we hope to be empowering for patients. You know, your cardiologist wants you to be empowered by the electrophysiology findings to, you know, which you were in a lot of ways, right? You changed your lifestyle. Part of your journey is, you know, it was you got empowered, but, you know, it's like we don't quite get it right because we're a very disempowering industry where, 
there's a lot of shaming of patients, especially, you know, in mental health. Patients go and talk to mental health providers and say, well, I'm changing my diet to improve my mental health. It's almost our default stance is like, well, that's not going to be enough. You know, like you, you, need, you need some meds, you need some therapy. And, and you know, like, like, I like what you said. It's not a panacea, but there's this weird disconnect that in medicine, we know that food choice underlies the majority of pathology that we see but we don't actually help anybody with their food choice. <laughs> it's like, it doesn't make any sense. Um, it really doesn't. And I think part of that, and, and I think what's really changing, I hope it's changing, is that as there's more awareness of how things like food impact our health and mental health, patients have gotten much more proactive in terms of really asking for that information, really changing their lifestyle. And, and you know, it doesn't, it doesn't take uh, a lot of examples clinically of, of seeing how people can really take control of their food to you know to become a convert as a physician that this is really powerful medicine absolutely yeah and I'm glad to see that psychiatrists uh, across the world are actually uh, engaging in this discussion a lot more and I know you know Professor Felice Jacker and she's been pivotal with some of her studies looking at uh, nutritional psychiatry and how we can use that as an adjunct I just wanted to go back on to something that you mentioned about inflammation because I think inflammation is like a really hot, sexy topic in both medicine and food uh, and nutrition in general. It's like we had to say it like 10 times this podcast, right? If we didn't say inflammation, people were like, what are they talking about? Doesn't Dung Rupee and Ramsey know about inflammation? We have to say that. We have to say microbiome. Like we're not going to leave... <laughs> And coconut oil. I'm going to say coconut oil. And avocado. We've got to say that. We definitely have to say avocado. Keto. Don't forget to say this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're going to talk about keto. Right. And we have to talk about, I mean, we already mentioned dark leafy greens. Right. Um, but, yeah. But, anyway, inflammation, as you're saying. Such a buzzword these days. Really is. But I find it um, absolutely fascinating, uh, particularly, like, you know, um, how inflammation is, yes, uh, one of the mechanisms by which we see a lot of different lifestyle-related illnesses, cardiovascular disease, um, the issues associated with obesity and metabolic dysregulation. But um, I know you talk about it a lot in your books. How does that relate to depression? Well, if, if you think about your brain is uh, you know, really the most special part of your body. I mean, one of the reasons I want it uh, I look forward and I hope everybody listening is really going to reconsider your mental health. What I've been asking people to think about your mental health 2.0, right? Like what's that next level for you of better mental health and, and all the ways that you could think about that. Um, we, we want you to think about your brain as these very specialized cells. They're really doing more work than kind of any other cells in your body. And anytime cells are, you know, they're like any engine. You're running at a high metabolic rate. You're creating a lot of waste products. You're, you're needing a lot of inputs. Um, Inflammation is, is, is simply the, the alarm settings of our body, right? It's, it's the natural forces that we create in our body to deal with injury. And so as we uh, have all kinds of things that are quote-unquote injurious, right? Whether that's stress and lots of cortisol, whether that's eating a diet that, that tilts our cell membranes to be more pro-inflammatory, the, the notion is that, that inflammation kind of is... Uh, uh, having excess inflammation, um, well, it's, it's like having it anywhere in your body. If, if, uh, if you sprain your ankle, um, walking around on rounds in the hospital becomes a much more difficult and arduous test. You can still do it, right? Rupi will still finish rounds with a sprain. If we give him two sprained ankles, he'd, he'd hobble along on crutches. 
But his experience of it, his patient's experience of it, it wouldn't be the best day. He'd get home and his ankles would be hurting, he'd be grumpy, and, and that's kind of a good example of that's just because of inflammation in his ankles. So we want to kind of make that analogy and translate that into thinking about both your brain cells and also that way that you know, it's not as simple as when you're upset, you have inflammation in your brain. But in some ways it is when you look at things like um, some of the, uh, the interleukin treatment for hepatitis. I think over half of those patients get depressed. Think about what happens when you get the flu. You, get, you know that day where you have the flu, where you're like, oh my gosh, I just am so depressed <laughs> and I don't have any energy and I'm kind of tearful and I feel achy. And that feels a lot like clinical depression feels like because those inflammatory um, uh, signals in the body naturally cause some of the feelings that we see in clinical depression. Um, so that, that's kind of how we think about inflammation is related to the brain and related to depression. There are lots of biomarkers that support this. Patients with depression have higher COP, CRP, they have higher homocysteine. There's just a, a big meta-analysis, that, the two of them that have come out, looking at the use of anti-inflammatories any anti-inflammatory, whether it's a statin or an NSAID or a COX-2 inhibitor, and finding a much greater response rate to antidepressants. And so it turns out that, you know, when you think that anti-inflammatories have a big data signal that they're antidepressants, um, you know, it, at least it leads us right now in the data to know that something about inflammation and depression are very interrelated that we're going to unravel. Absolutely. And uh, you know what? I, I have loved watching this sort of realization where we've known about the associations between inflammatory disorders and uh, depression. And now we're actually beginning to see links of causal um, uh, mechanisms between inflammation and, and depression and a whole uh, suite of other mental health illnesses. Um, some of the stuff that's come out regarding the mechanisms is it reduces the reuptake of um, uh, neurotransmitters, um, it lowers your serotonin and diverts it toward actually neurotoxic chemicals in some uh, cases via the chironeurin pathway. I always forget how to say that. You've been, um, you're the chironeurin pathway, yeah, you've been boning up. Yeah, I mean, there are all these, and I like what you're saying that, you know, it, it, that we, as we understand more mechanism, uh, you know, there's a kind of, I would say, academic parts of medicine for all of us as physicians that we love to geek out on that stuff. And then I do think there's that farm boy in me that says, okay, like, how are we going to change somebody's life today with this information? And where, you know, how, how does this idea of everybody listening that you, you can change the, in some way, let's say, make you, uh, make your diet somewhat more anti-inflammatory. And then we'd all kind of convince that sounds good. Who wants inflammation in the brain? I don't want to spray an ankle in my brain. And like, well, what, what are you going to eat differently at dinner tonight because that's really where the rubber hits for the road right how, how is that going to directly inform your choices um and and that's where i you know i get so excited about your work ruby is that that i really feel more than just about any other doctor you really you know give people the tools for that really you know we can all talk about like oh more spices spices are anti-inflammatory it's like okay i can put a spicy recipe in my cookbook but like you really show people the use of a lot of these really ancient really anti-inflammatory spices so it's uh it's just great work that's great man yeah and, and same to you and one of the things that i love about um medics as well in general and and scientists that we love 
a mechanism, we love a pathway. And once it's like, it's binary like that, okay, inflammation bad, we can block inflammation using, yes, food, but you know, certain uh, pharmaceutical targets, then I can understand that. But one thing, and this is going to your point, I wanted to um, to talk about is, do you think we um, use the reductionist methodology in the way we approach something that is quite systemic uh, in too much way, in the same way we treat, you know, individual symptoms with one, pharmacy, one uh, pharmacological target at a time? And in reality, is depression not actually a suite of different conditions that in some cases, yes, may have a chemical imbalance, but in other cases is, and exactly what you're doing with your, uh, with your clinic, have deep psychological roots? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think we get overly reductionistic. One of the things that I really love about psychiatry and I really love about Columbia psychiatry is uh, a, a kind of constant pressure to be on your toes clinically and be thinking about deep psychological causes and really appreciating those in our patients. It's one of the reasons I went into psychiatry. I mean, I'm seeing you, it's, uh, it's 1030 in the morning here and I've been seeing, I've been listening for four hours. I started four and a half. I started this morning at 6am and really listening is carefully and in a different way than a way that really has gotten lost in a lot of medicine just because people don't have time. And so I think one of the reasons we've gotten reductionistic is that Prozac is very effective for a lot of people and Prozac costs $5 a month and you can prescribe it in a primary care doctor's office visit that takes 10 minutes. And, and that's a very efficient way to treat depression and anxiety. It doesn't address the root causes, be that inflammation or let's say, you know, polymorphisms in your serotonin receptor or your BDNF gene. Um, uh, or the deeper psychological causes, so often informing depression, uh, things like trauma, uh, so much trauma that, that so many of us have experienced, whether that's being bullied or being, it doesn't have to be sort of sexual assault or, or a, a trauma on that level. It can be a trauma of neglect or a trauma of just not being understood during development. You know, I was like the nerdy kid who got teased and, and those things sit with us. So. You know, I think we both want to reduce mental health because it's scary, right? And we want to live in some denial and kind of, in a lot of ways, perpetuating the stigma that those are the conditions of other people. I've got the slide in my slide deck that, you know, one in five people have a mental illness. And I'm like, I hate this slide. Because like five out of five of us have mental health and it's fragile and it could go at any minute. And if you're not working on it, I think you're at increased risk of, you know, becoming one of the one in five Americans who have a mental illness. It's just... It frames the argument as this notion of other. And then you look at, okay, lifetime rates of men of a substance use disorder, half of us, right? Lifetime rates of depression in women. I mean, just majority, right? It's just, it's, um, it gets reductionistic because in, in many ways, the challenges that medicine has faced in how do we wrap our arms around mental health? How do we even diagnose these disorders? We don't have any biomarkers, so let's describe them. Well, now, you know, medicine, we're in trouble with that, right? We, we have this somewhat unreliable diagnostic system and, you know, everyone's angry at antidepressants because they don't work. I think when you sit with hundreds and hundreds of patients that have depression, you see that, that what you're saying, that there are a variety of different ways to get into those illnesses and not just depression, also anxiety disorders for sure and substance abuse disorders. 
Um, and the, the people respond really differently. It's, it's very humbling as a physician. You give a patient Zoloft, or you prescribe them the Mediterranean diet, or you do a course of CBT with them, and you see some people, it just totally works. I mean, their lives, you see Prozac kick in in a month, and people come in, and it's like, oh my gosh, you were a vibrant living human being. You give that same medicine to a patient who has kind of the same symptoms, and they come in and they're like, this is the worst thing I've ever taken. I, I hate it. I feel awful. I feel jittery. This is, it's humbling. And you realize that, you know, it, it's where it, it's, um, you realize quite quickly that to respect without any judgment, that there are lots of different ways that people get better. And there are lots of different values that people bring into treatment and that we have to do a better job respecting those values, um, and engaging with people because they're, you know, I can give you an antidepressant that's an herb, that's a diet, that's a pharmaceutical, that's an interpretation about your development, that's uh, a prescription for better sleep and exercise. Like there's lots of antidepressants that we have. Absolutely. And I, I'm so glad we're like having a genuine conversation about this being, you know, your, your anecdote about five out of five people have mental health and we are all fragile. And it just takes some people who have a lower threshold to tip into what would be classically defined as a mental health condition. Yeah, or something like, take your own experience, right? During your episode with uh, heart arrhythmia, like, how was your mental health? I mean, it must have been a mess. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, it, one of the things, I can't remember if I've talked about this, but one of the things was that, um, you know, as a physician, I mean, you know, you went to Columbia, one of the best universities in the world, uh, medical schools in the world. Um, you're meant to be in the, like uh, indestructible as a, as a medic. You know, you're meant to do your residency or your foundation jobs without really thinking about, you know, the fact that you haven't slept for three days straight and you're stressed out your mind, but you're a, you're a medic. You can deal with this. This is what your job details. You know, you're, you're meant to be an absolute warrior at all times of the day. And for you to suddenly realize that your threshold for a poor lifestyle is so low that you tip yourself into you know, episodes of uh, where your heartbeat's like 200 beats per minute. I mean, it's, it, it really degrades at your, your central identity, whether I could even do this job. And after studying for six years, that was a, that was a big realization. Well, I mean, there's all kinds of layers of that for you. I mean, not, not to make this a session for you, but I think uh, just to think that, you know, how many clinicians ask you about your mood or whether you were depressed Right. Um, and if you were anxious, you got maybe a little Ativan because you don't want to trigger an arrhythmia. So it's better to take a little Ativan just to calm it down. And and all the ways that sat with you that, you know, what, you're no longer a warrior. I mean, you're you know, you're you're also I mean, you're a special guy because, you know, you're not you're not just sort of proving it as a physician, but you're you know, you're also bringing a, a real cultural element to the workplace of I, I don't know what it. I don't know what it means in to be British and of. Is your, are you from Indian, Indian descent? Yeah, Indian uh, background, Indian, yeah. background. Yeah, right. But, but there's a, you know, there's a whole complicated layer in that of you know not just being a man who's struggling with his health, but you know, being. I'm sure there's a lot of pressure on you to prove things in all kinds of different ways, and so the idea that you're struggling not just with the heart rhythm, but probably also with your mood and with your anxiety, like those are words that you know we can't you know, male physicians, we shouldn't use, right? We never get depressed and we don't have anxiety. And, and, you know, that's probably one of the reasons that at least in America, and I suspect it's similar in the UK, physicians are the top group for suicide. I mean, we are at the number one risk group. And, uh, 
And it just, I think, goes to speak of that. Um, I guess one of the things that's nice about the world getting a little more woke is this yeah. idea that it it's not going to work for us as physicians to die in droves like this, and it doesn't work for our patients if we don't walk the walk and if we don't understand that, you know, it's five out of five of us. You're working on your mental health just like I am, just like my patients are. Uh, you're working on your physical health just, just like we all are. Because um, then we're in this together, which I feels more cozy to me. Yeah, 100%. And I, I, I feel like a, a lot more of us are getting more attuned to the idea of self-care and how important that is. And I think it probably took me a few years after to actually recognize uh, how much of an impact it may it, it did have on my um, my self-esteem and my, my mental well-being. Um, and it wasn't until like, you know, having open, honest conversations with other people about it um, who have been in similar circumstances, albeit with different pathologies, um, that uh, I came to realize, you know, this is something we just need to be a lot more honest about. And I, I don't know about the US, but certainly in the UK, there's definitely a lot more efforts from uh, our employees here in the National Health Service to to actually uh, give a little bit uh, more um, uh, advice and actually a bit more leeway for, for self-care and, and lifestyle. Yeah, it's uh, we're seeing more of that in the U.S. or more wellness programs, but I, I still think it's a big cultural shift for us as physicians um, that... that you know, it's finding that that balance between you know, we we can still be warriors. We can still pull all night shifts and 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 you know, more than that, maybe just sit and hold space with illness and death. And that it, it's we're trained; it's not going to rattle us in a certain way, but also acknowledge that that rattles all of us. And that you know, you gotta you gotta feed the machine, so to speak, of um, taking time to really. Uh, nourish the self and and uh, make sure that we are in tip-top shape for doing this job. You touched on something earlier um, regarding you know uh, the varying effects of pharmaceuticals or lifestyle interventions from patient to patient. How do you process what you're going to start a patient with based on their history, based on their presentation? Like, how do you actually approach? Uh, a new patient when they arrive in your clinic like what's the thinking behind everything well I, I really look at sort of the history so it's a big difference somebody who's never been treated with depression or anxiety and somebody who's come in and they've tried a number of different either psychotherapies or medicines you know I, I kind of start from an acuity standpoint of uh, really folk making sure that there aren't safety issues of just often having to um, contend with really frightening symptoms like suicidality um, and uh, so I really kind of look at um, a symptoms-based approach of what are the primary symptoms that I'm dealing with what are the primary barriers to function um, is there what I think of as low-hanging fruit in terms of someone's psychology that they are their ideas they haven't explored let's say someone who tells me that they were sexually molested as a child and they've never talked about it you know, while that's a very traumatic thing to hear about, um, to me, again, that's low-hanging fruit. That, that's something that's really important in a core piece of your identity, that talking about that with a skilled professional and getting into it and understanding it is going to lead somewhere. I don't know where, but it's going to lead somewhere that's critically important for that person's psychological development uh, and human potential. Um, if I hear something like, you know, someone's been trying a million different diets to treat their anxiety and they've never had Zoloft or, you know, sertraline... <laughs> 
Um, that's going to go on my list of things. So I kind of, in an initial consult, I'm looking for symptoms, what's been tried, and like, what's my, what's in my bag of tricks? What are the list of interventions that are evidence-based? Someone who, you know, comes in and they're, they're eating garbage. They're eating the standard American diet. They wake up and they have a muffin and, uh, you know, giant soy frappuccino latte, you know, just a giant processed food sugar bomb. And then they have, you know, they tell me they have a healthy lunch of some iceberg lettuce with a chicken breast and some, you know, uh, uh, ranch salad dressing. And then they tell me they feel guilty in the middle of the day, but they have to have their pick-me-up, so they have a giant bag of white chocolate pretzels. Right, I'm, I'm starting, I don't have to hear much more to think, that goes on my list. Like, all right, this is a person who thinks they're making some healthy choices, so that's good, they're interested in that, but is not eating any of the foods that I would want them to think about as really being at the top of their list, given that they have a lot of anxiety and depression. Um, and I... And then I, I kind of think about the next steps in terms of somebody who's coming to me and is in a really bad depression, not sleeping. There's There needs to be medical interventions to to really turn things around or the person will end up in the hospital potentially um, versus, you know, someone who through the conversation feels a little more settled down, symptoms aren't as severe. Um, and, and what are some of the more other natural things? Um, you know, ranging from some supplements to getting into a supportive relationship, psychotherapy relationship that's going to help them. And oftentimes, you know, what's nice about my job in our clinic is that you don't know sometimes after sitting with somebody for an hour. And, uh, and, and that's why we meet with people frequently and people come right back. I would say usually it's a couple of sessions, two or three sessions to really have a feel of who someone is. And then, um, and then that leads to our interventions. Um, sometimes we, we see folks with much more severe concerns, things like ketamine addiction um, and substance use and various types of, of, of struggles. Um, but I mean, that, I think that gives you a little notion of how we think, which is, you know, what's our best guess of, of a reasonable diagnosis? What are all the treatments for that? And then who is this person? How can we fit something together that feels really good to them? If you come and see me and you like, you hate big pharma, Okay, like I'm not gonna think that I'm gonna give you Prozac until we get to know each other really well, and I want to have a lot of other tools. I'm gonna talk to you about, you know, foods and lifestyle changes. I'm gonna talk about some herbs and supplements that might be helpful and based on the data. And then, you know, I tell patients a lot. I think about uh, that we're in the service industry, and I'd like to give you a menu. And here are the things that would be reasonable to try that people have tried that I've seen work that evidence tells us work. How do those sound to you? What questions do you have about them? Which one do you think we could get started on the fastest? Because unfortunately, I can't, I, you know, I, right now I can't predict whether you're going to respond to Zoloft or psychotherapy or lifestyle changes. And so let's get started on a trial. And what you see then is, you know, after a month or six weeks, people are better than they aren't. And I'm real like, I don't know, I wouldn't say quick to judge, but like, I'm like, when something doesn't work, I'm really like, that's great news. As I tell patients, the next step, best step is the next step. Once we know it not work, yeah. then we're on to, then we're looking for the next thing that will. We're getting more uh, attuned to just how rife uh, mental health issues are, um, uh, just generally in society. What do you think um, we don't know about? Do you think we're, we're literally just looking at the tip of the iceberg? 
do you think we're, we're, we're... I think we're looking at the tip of the iceberg because we don't, you know, unlike the rest of medicine, you know, I, I'll, when, if you have a bad depression or anxiety, I'm going to test your thyroid. I'm going to look, you know, make sure you have your B12s normal and your iron's normal. But, you know, but besides some of those basic labs, I'm going to make sure you're, you know, you don't have drugs in your urine. But, you know, in some ways, if I'm a good psychiatrist, you'll tell me about that, right? That if you think about a, a test that really is going to direct my treatment or an imaging uh, scan, there isn't much and there isn't really anything. And so that's going to completely change in the next 10 to 15 years in psychiatry, um, for sure. We're going to get more biomarkers. We're going to do a better job of matching up probably genotypes uh, with different treatments. We're not close to that yet, but we're getting there. Um, and, and I look forward to seeing that because it's very frustrating. Patients say, all right, well, like, why, why'd you pick that medicine? And it's like, because I like it. I've seen it work. <laughs> you know? And it's like, well, why not this other one that's evidence-based? It's like, yeah, You know, that, that's how a lot of us practice. And, um, you know, I, I think I, I want to do better than that for my patients. My patients want me to do better than that. So um, then there's this whole new layer of data coming out about neuroplasticity. There's this whole new kind of way that we're learning about how the body kind of speaks to itself. There's all the microbiome data that's just blowing up in terms of the different types of organisms in our gut and how they dictates, you know, beyond the sound bites that like, oh, the bacteria in your gut makes serotonin. It's like, all right, whoop-de-doo. <laughs> like the bottom line is your gut really regulates your inflammatory processes and is, is absolutely central to having a healthy brain. So, so for, you know, that just, if I would have told you four years ago, five years ago, that, that the gut is and, and, and giving probiotics and fermented foods is, is actually going to become something people think about in mental health. I mean, 10 years ago, people just laughed at that idea. And now that's, you know, that is like, I was just talking to my colleague, uh, Jeff Miller, uh, who's the head of neuroimaging at Columbia Psychiatry. And, you know, they are right now in the process of scanning brains for inflammation and correlating it to patient microbiome. Uh, for patients with depression who are in the hospital, right? So it, it's, it's cool things are happening. I mean, I, I, I was just in a lecture the other day um, looking at different methods in which... Is there some banging? <laughs> that's, that's my New York... This is how people know the authentic New York City interview. That's my heater. <laughs> that's your heater. I thought it was a builder, like, just going at it at the no, radio. It's the heater. It's, just, it's, it's actually the little tiny water molecules that get caught and then they bang around and it's I guess such force that it sounds like a hammer but it's just a drop of water like that's New York for you that's that's New York for you yeah no I um like the the microbiome uh and the microbiota and and all these different me methods of communication with our brain just absolutely fascinate me you know we like to again with the reductionist hat on we like to think okay well these these metabolites of microbial activity include short chain fatty acids but also neurotransmitters like serotonin that's clearly going to have an effect well or actually serotonin is having an impact on your brain via indirect mechanisms it's, it's quite unlikely that it's going to be crossing the blood-brain barrier although there's some people that postulate that but uh, more likely it's going to be having an impact on the motility of your gut 
and then also interacting with your vagal nerve uh, afferents that will take information directly to your brain and actually change inflammation pathways centrally. So, and, and that's just, a t that, that is the tip of the iceberg, you know, it impacts yeah, but, I, but I do think that describes the mechanism it, to me in enough detail that it catches our interest and it makes sense. The idea of this vagus nerve is sitting down there and it is taking in tremendous amount of information from the gut. Um, the, the, the idea that these, um, uh, these signals directly influence the brain through the vagus, uh, that, that's, you know, that, that, that's increasingly you know, supported with good science, but also you know, it, makes, it makes sense to us. You know, especially if we begin to think about serotonin not as like the happiness molecule, but as the homeostasis molecule, that it regulates sleep, sex. I mean, I, I fiddle with serotonin a lot in people's brains, not fiddle, but you know, it's part of what we do. And you know, it, it has tremendous effects on cognition, on creativity, on sex drive. Um, people think, of, yeah, it, it, it's really, uh, it, it's a very, very, you know, the model is ubiquitous in our systems. And so, um, it does a lot more than just making us happy. Um, totally, yeah. And I, like to go on your point about um, choosing different treatments based on data that we currently lack, it is exactly the same here in the NHS. That, that what we know about through our own personal research, through communicating with like, you know, within the functional medicine community, within the nutritional psychiatry community, it can be quite frustrating for a physician on the front line where you know there is a way in which you can match certain interventions to certain people and there will be a way of actually making that a much more educated guess. But currently now it's kind of like, what's the flavor of the month? What have you seen anecdotally? What is within your sort of locus of practice that you've seen that could potentially work and it's going to cause the less, the least harm based on and, clinical and history? And I the part that's frustrating is we hear that we have a huge mental health crisis, which we do. But I have to tell you, when I meet someone with depression, I, and this maybe sounds cocky, but I'm, I'm not worried about whether I can get them better or not. I'm not going to say our cure rates are like 100%, but are getting people better and into a better space, it's pretty high. And, and that's not because our clinic is you know better than other. I think most mental health clinicians, if you give them some runway and allow them time and space to work, we have tools to get people better, lots of them. And, and most patients do get a lot better. I feel like we all, so often it's sort of, you know, with meds, we hear about the bad reactions and the horrible side effects people have, but we don't hear about, you know, the 16 year old who was hearing voices and wanted to kill themselves. And, you know, four days later on medicine was feeling better and didn't have any voices, or maybe that's an extreme example, but we don't you hear those you know, things I hear in my office all the time. And I don't mean to sound all pro-med, everyone's like listened in to hear all about the food. We've got to tell, we've got to tell people what to eat for mental health here, but the, um, but just that, that, you know, when, when treatments get called, like, it's a miracle, or I feel so much better, or I understand that about myself now. Uh, and so, you know, I think that's one of the reasons that, that uh, also in mental health we're hesitant to innovate, is that there's been so much kind of quote-unquote innovation or hope for the future that hasn't worked out. And when we then have some of these workhorse medications and workhorse therapies that, like, do work out, it, it, we have, we've had a hard time innovating. Um, and then think about the innovation that's happening, right? It's like all drugs, like psilocybin, microdosing LSD, ketamine, 
you know, and it begins to feel that as much as I'm excited about a lot, I'm really excited about a lot of those things and how they could change my practice. Um, it still feels to me that there's some things going on with people's mental health and how we approach and, and develop mental health that, that we're not getting right in our, in our cultures. Um, and that there has been this kind of breakdown of institutions and values that traditionally have protected our mental health and give us an orientation around ourselves. So, but I feel like we got to talk to people, everyone's still listening. We got to talk about what foods we think people should eat for their mental health. Um, uh, but I'm, I'm really glad that you touched on the acute side and the more severe side of mental health and how pharmaceuticals 100% have a role because I think there is an, a, an assumption that when we talk about food as medicine or we talk about nutritional psychiatry, we're talking about either or. It's not a combination approach. And like you said very eloquently, there are people that have had miraculous improvements with the use of pharmaceuticals, and I don't think that should be you know, forgotten. Um, and Oh, it's so stigmatizing. Ruby. Like, imagine you're a mom with a suicidal depression and you're better on Zoloft. Like, you're going to bring that up in mommy's group? Like, hey, just so you ladies know, like, remember I don't want to get, like, totally die last week, but I'm feeling great, and I think it's the Zola. No one's going to say that, right? They're going to, even though that's like, what a miracle, you feel better. Like, um, but that's like the most stigmatized, right? You know, when you were struggling with your AFib, if somebody would have put you on a little antidepressant, you wouldn't have walked in and been like, ah, you know, guys, thanks for all the support the last few months. I've really been struggling, but I got on a little medicine. And man, I'm just feeling so much better. And we were like, and we were like, oh, wow, are you going to be on that for a long time, Rupee? Or like, ooh, is that bad? You needed medicine? Well, you'd never be like, wow, your you know, hypertension was so bad you need medicine? You'd be like, wow, I'm really glad you're treating your hypertension. So there's that huge amount of stigma we have. Um, uh, and I think people do forget the acute. You know, I think that's part of where the mental health community gets a little jaded is that you, know, you spend months in a psych ER and, and really seeing the crisis that we have and people in acute mental health crises. And, and it gets frustrating when you know, people want to, I don't know, really speak with authority. I, I really try not to speak with too much authority and with much more humility that comes from like um, a respect for patients and individuals' experiences that are very different from my own and, and that we really often are in a stance of judgment right? I'm feeling bad. Hey, don't feel so bad, man. I'm anxious. Hey, you shouldn't worry so much. As opposed to that really more empathic and true space of like, what's bringing you down? And like, what's getting you worried? And really being with people in those mental states as opposed to dismissing them. All right. And that's why I love you, brother. Let's talk about, <laughs> let's talk about food, finally. Uh, Eat Complete, the 21 Nutrients. Uh, I'd love to give us, uh, give you the opportunity to, to talk to listeners about what you think a perfect sort of mental health day slash diet would look like uh, in terms of, you know, preventing uh, and looking after our minds as well. Yeah, for sure. So I think for, for um, people who are interested in data, the most exciting data comes around the prevention data, that if you look at populations over time, like take 10,000 university students in Spain, um, uh, Almu Sanchez Viegas and her group um, at University de Palmas in Spain, have a, a great, uh, the Sun Navarro data set. And they looked at 10,194 university students, followed them for four and a half years, and found that those who uh, ate a more Mediterranean style diet had a decrease in depression about, you know, between 30 and 50% decreased risk. And so, 
in our work, it's really trying to translate those types of findings into actually helping people what, know what to eat. With Eat Complete, my approach was first to start with the nutrients. Here are the nutrients that are most important for mental health. What are the foods that have the most of them? And then uh, how can we put those foods together in combination so people are eating with what's called nutrient density? That we're really against calorie counting except for the way of, of understanding nutrient density. That it's not whether something has 100 calories or not or 1,000 calories, 1,000 calorie meal. That's fine meal if it comes with thousands of nutrients. And so it's sort of thinking about eating with efficiency, that every time you're eating calories, you're taking in lots of nutrients. And so a day in the life of a, of a brain foodie, as we'd call them, or as I, I call it, completer, somebody you're going to get all of your nutrients from food, you're not going to get any of them from supplements. And, and no offense to folks who need supplements. I mean, there are lots of conditions where people need supplements. I just think it's this kind of little challenge that we've always had as humans and having this big, hungry human brain, like how are you going to get enough nutrients up there? And so we tend to look at food categories because we really want to prevent people from being obsessed with foods just like kale. I know, you know, we love kale and I love kale, but you could never eat kale, you'd be fine, right? If you eat arugula and cabbage and, um, you know, Swiss chard, you're getting all the stuff that you get in the kale. Um, but we want to focus on those nutrient-dense food categories. Those are going to be leafy greens and rainbow vegetables, really like core of healthy eating, looking for those colors on your plates. Um, we emphasize a lot of seafood. Um, as we've gotten into a more plant-based movement and, and people have gotten concerned about things like red meat, you know, that's very debatable. But the concern is that as you lose meat and as you lose seafood, you lose vitamin B12, you lose long-chain omega-3 fats, and, and you're not getting the most highly absorbable things, of stuff like iodine, zinc, and iron. Um, and, and, you know, I think I just had some uh, oysters last night very nutrient dense, like an oyster has 10 calories, six oysters, you're going to get, you know, a third of your daily iron, you're going to get, um, gosh, 300% of your daily vitamin B12. I mean, you're just going to get an incredible amount of nutrition for not very many calories. And same thing with leafy greens, cup of kale, right? Just incredible amount of vitamin K, vitamin C, vitamin A, plus you get all those phytonutrients. So, a day in the life of somebody eating to take care of their mental health is going to be, first of all, it's going to be whole foods. I'm really not an advocate of bars and potions and powders and all this stuff that people are, you know, kind of loading into their smoothie. Really about um, simple whole foods, uh, focusing uh, really on, initially for people, palate redevelopment. Like I used to, when I was in medical school, I'd always have coffee with two creams and two sugars. Every, co every cup of coffee is like a chocolate milkshake. And, and actually, I just stopped drinking coffee a couple months ago. But up until then, I would have coffee more recently with just probably the last decade of my life, really dark, strong coffee with a little bit of half and half or cream in it. And it tastes sweet to me because there's a little bit of sweetness in dairy from the you know, lactose is a less sweet sugar, but it's, um, it, it still is a sugar, um, less sweet than sucrose. And so we're looking for a few other food categories, nuts and seeds, things like pepitas, almonds, cashews, really, really important. Um, uh, really thinking about the fats in someone's diet where, you know, really, it, and that's one of those lessons from the Mediterranean diet. Uh, most of us are, are in America and the UK get a lot of these seed oil fats, sunflower oil, corn oil, soybean oil, very inexpensive vegetable fats. And those kind of came on board, at least in this country, as cardiologists wanted to move people away from saturated fats. 
and again, you can get into lots of debates about the science of that, but I, I think for me, one of the, the, the lessons with patients is really helping them switch over to olive oil and really having that be the primary fat that they eat. Um, great way to really increase the caloric. You know, people are like, vegetables don't fill me up. And it's like, that's because you're not putting enough olive oil on them. <laughs> it's because you're not chopping up pistachios and mixing them in there. Uh, that's why they don't fill you up. Like, make it filling. You're not putting some anchovies on top of them. So, um, but, you know, just your, your question, Rupi, I think is also the, the straightforward one. Like, what should people eat? And so for breakfast, I recommend that, that people, um, first of all, I've, I've gotten really intrigued with these intermittent fasting type regimens where people, you know, have a hot cup of tea for breakfast or, um, you know, a hard boiled egg. Right. And, and by doing that and avoiding carbohydrates into the later, I did this yesterday until about three in the afternoon. I didn't have any carbs and I'd had an early dinner. So I was getting into about it's about like 20 hours without carbohydrates. And we know when that happens, you start to make these ketones, these breakdown products of fats that look like that kind of think about it as like a rinse cycle for the brain. So, um, but morning time, you know, you're looking for nutrient density. So berries with some kefir or some whole milk yogurt. And again, like a local grass fed yogurt is what we'd be looking for. Um, oatmeal with berries and a scoop of almond butter. Um, just some, I call it the forager breakfast to just do f- some fruits and some nuts <laughs> I'm just get a, a banana, a couple of handfuls of cashew. Um, uh, I, I drink a lot of ginger tea and herbal teas these days. So I'll have one of those with some honey. Um, uh, so those are, you know, uh, the idea in, in the beginning of the day, especially if you're not in a fasting state or not trying to fast is to try and get a nice mix, some fiber, some protein and some fats, but particularly focusing on the fats and the proteins. That's where lox, smoked salmon, is a great way to start the day because you're getting this nice um, dose of really healthy fats. Um, And I find those keep people more satiated. Um, And also, again, thinking about those key food categories, I'm thinking, how do I get some leafy greens in my breakfast? It's easy, right? I'm doing some eggs, just drop in a handful of arugula or kale, right? And just suddenly you've just really bumped up the nutrient density of that dish. then sort of midday thinking again about all right what are those dishes where you could maybe sneak in some seafood right where are could you get more greens can you do a green soup so you can get lots of greens um midday is where i think a lot of people put down that big salad where we're looking again for that mix of not just crunchy vegetables but how do we get in some fats some proteins um how do you top it with something better than a chicken breast um uh, it's where, you know, a piece of salmon or some seafood or some shrimp. I just find that the seafood game is something people need a lot of help with. Um, the, then I also like to really focus on snacks, both, you know, things that give people joyfulness and but also things that, you know, aren't going to cause lots of blood sugar dysregulation, moving from pretzels and chips to things like having half an avocado or having, again, a handful of nuts or having a whole fat yogurt um, if you eat dairy. Um, uh, and then dinner time really helping people one kind of eat those meals a little earlier and a little bit smaller and, and then again to think in those broad food categories right when was the last time you had a vegetarian dinner once a week all right well that, you know not that you should necessarily be a vegetarian or be all plant-based but that's a great way of upping your plant game in our house we'll have a rice and beans dish lots of avocado lots of pico de gallo and good salsas um corn tortillas, right? That's an amazing dinner for our family. Um, it's also something we haven't talked about much, Ruby, but just the practicality of this. Maybe we'll talk about that in a little bit of just, you know, I, I'm also a dad with two kids and my wife and I really have, have worked hard to, to, you know, 
be good parents like all parents do, but really push our kids in the right direction while at the same time understanding their kids. I mean, I think every parent listening knows that challenge of like, you know, they want to eat mac and cheese. My kids eat mac and cheese. All right, well, how do you bump that up? We have this amazing green mac and cheese. I don't eat complete the lazy green mac and cheese. My kids devour that. And it's just where you, you know, put the kale in a mini prep until it's almost like a powder, mix it in with the noodles and the cheese. You can put down a whole big bunch of kale with, uh, within that mac and cheese. And so those are, I guess, again, just from a practicality standpoint, um, thinking about what works for you and then focusing. I have this little rhyme. I've been saying seafood greens, nuts and beans, and a little dark chocolate that, you know, if you focus on those things and really working them throughout your week, um, I think for most people that that's a step in the right direction. And then the, the basic rule of really avoiding processed foods, which is hard for people to do, but it really, you shouldn't be opening up packages. You should people ask about ingredient lists like that should be reading an ingredient list. It should be a warning sign to you. That you're like, you're in the dark zone of processed food. Like you've entered into the crossed over and like you might open it and eat that thing, but like you should be careful because odds are it's pretty, it's got some nasty weird stuff. <laughs> yeah, I, lo- I love the, the, the point about like the reality of, uh, you know, you having kids and a family and trying to do good by them as well. It kind of crosses over into your three barriers concept that I love from your book, um, the complication, the... Uh, time and money and, and why people might think, oh, that you can just rely on a multivitamin to get all these nutrients of transformation as you describe them. Um, and the, the, it makes it very real. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's what I hear. And, and I think it's also where I, I kind of want to speak truth a little bit more. That I, I, We did a little TV recording here for CBS Sunday Morning on nutritional psychiatry. And, and we had this big food spread and the host is this really well-known American journalist. And she's saying... Well, you know, Drew, this, when people see this at home, they're going to say it looks complicated. And I was like, ma'am, we've cut vegetables in half, smeared them with olive oil, and slid them in the oven. Like, what's complicated about this? Like, nothing complicated about that. Like, I've chopped this Brussels sprout in half, right, and then poured olive oil on a pan and slid it in my oven. It's like, and turned on the oven. Like, what was complicated about that? And, and so, I, I mean, so there's a way that the complication... The concern I think we would have is that we've done such a bad job in medicine and in science that we've made food so complicated that people have forgotten that, you know, it's always been the simple pleasure. It's like chopping up stuff and cooking it simply and mixing it together in ways that's like, what goes well with those Brussels sprouts? Boy, it'd be like a little bacon, some pomegranate seeds, I don't know, some garlic, right? There's like onions, there's like a few, but it's not a, it's not complicated. I'm not a great chef. Nothing I do is complicated. Um... You know, time and money, yeah. You know, it's strange to me that, that they're saying that middle schoolers in America spend 8 to 12 hours on a screen. And, 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 and I think most of us really struggle with the screen. But, you know, that idea of, of instead of saying we don't have time, really being clear about where our time went and that we're making choices. You don't have time for food because you don't choose to make time for food. It's that, it's, it's that part of psychiatry that's fun where at the end of the day, if people are externalizing, it's because of these external factors that I don't have time, you really hope to help people really empower themselves that no matter what the external factors are, you can sort out a healthy diet no matter where you are in terms of time and money. There's, um, 
But yeah, the money part, it, it just costs less to eat at home. The Smiles trial Felice Jacket did, um, adding on a Mediterranean diet, modified Mediterranean diet, to the treatment of depression in a 60-person trial, really landmark study in nutritional psychiatry. Those um, participants who adopted the Mediterranean diet saved 140 Australian dollars a month. So you end up with basically $1,000 of saving. So, and also learn to be efficient. I made myself two eggs for breakfast this morning. I put a little za'atar sprinkled it on top of there. But the cooking and eating it and cleaning up was like seven minutes. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and you know, to me is very, uh, I don't know. So, and an egg, I mean, like a dozen eggs in America, really good eggs cost like four bucks. So that was like 80 cents. So I don't think it, I, I think you can do it. And that's what I want everybody to hear. And reliance on supplements is just, I am annoyed by this line Supplements are an insurance policy. Multivitamins an insurance policy. There's no insurance policy for not taking care of yourself. There's no insurance policy for eating garbage. Um, the other reason I don't like supplements is that you know your body has to deal with everything. Everything you put in it, your body's got to sort it, detoxify it, conjugate it, put it in your pee or your poop or your sweat. It, it doesn't just... It's not like it just says, oh, gosh, thanks, these healthy vitamins. I'm going to hang on to these for a little while. Thanks for looking out for me, pal. Gosh, we were run a little low on boron. Thank goodness. What an insurance <laughs> policy. You know, that, that's not how the body works. And so, and to me, it also speaks to, like, you don't think you're getting full nourishment from your food. That's why you take a supplement. And you have a fantasy that something's going to give it to you better than food. And for people who are having bad gut issues, for people who are iron deficient, or people who have pernicious anemia, I don't, I don't mean disrespect to anybody who do need supplements, but the majority of people I see, they have a hope, a wing, and a prayer that the supplement's working, and as you take a detailed history, it's not. And if you look in the evidence, none of them do. There really haven't been powerful studies that show supplements do anything that what the Women's Health Initiative showed that supplements correlate most closely with an increased risk of death. Yeah. So... Yeah. So those, that's how I feel about those barriers that when, you know, you talk about food, people sort of shrug it off or feel overwhelmed by it. And, and, and the goal of the book was really to say, hey, there's actually a select set of foods that have most of the nutrients your brain needs. Let's build your human diet out of that because the coolest part of you as a human is your brain. I mean, that is by far the coolest thing going on about you. Um, and... and um, and let's use those foods in a way that you like. Like, I love meeting people who don't like seafood. I met this, I, I was talking to this couple and the wife's saying, oh, he doesn't eat any seafood. And I, oh, and I was like, this is like, love it. Like, why not? Is it the taste? Is it the texture? Have you had bad experiences? Have you tried a fish taco? Have you tried sushi? Have you tried ceviche? Where you're, you're working it, trying to see, okay, how can you have, help this eater have a transformative experience with this food category? That's great. I mean, um, I, I love uh, the fact that in your book, you've talked about 21 nutrients of transformation. We obviously don't have time to go through every 21, but you can get it all in the book and the way you've described it and how that relates to brain health, cognitive health, behavior change is, um, is fantastic. Your e-course as well, um, Eat to Beat Depression. 
Tell us about that. You started that. The, the e-course was just trying to take this information. We had a lot of people contacting us wanting kind of basic information uh, around how to eat for brain health, how to eat to beat depression. And based on the data that we saw, we just wanted to create a short video e-course. So no matter where you are in the comfort of your own home, you could um, get a, 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 in some ways a, a kind of up to speed on the newest data up to speed, a lot of people don't think about their brain in terms of what we call neuroplasticity, that your brain is always growing and changing. And that's like great news for us um, because it, it, it really speaks to the potential your brain has to repair and to heal. And just kind of take that info and then go right into the data about the food to really share that so people you know, know our recommendations are based in science. And, um, and then just talk really specifically, really, really uh, talk specifically about the food categories and specific nutrients that are most important for depression. And, and to help people start out with an initial game plan. So really for every food category, go through like seafood and think, okay, well, where are you? And like, what's your game plan? If, you're, if you love seafood, like what's your frequency? What's the diversity? If you hate seafood, like what's your first step? You're a seafood newbie. Can we, can we get you to try, you know, a shrimp taco or a bite of sushi or some clam chowder or, you know, where where is there a little bit of a, um, a way for us to get involved? There's some soba noodles with a little bonito dashi in there, right? Like how how can we how can we start to enhance that food category in your life? And so that's eat to beat depression. It's been really wonderful. Hundreds of people have gone through the course, um, and it comes with uh, a set of um, handouts, things like a food journal things to put on your fridge in terms of each nutrient and what the top foods are for that nutrient, grocery shopping lists, um, and a little mini e-cookbook. And so that, that's the e-course. People can find that on our website. Um, uh, I'm sure, I'm sure we'll, we'll give uh, Rupi and his team a code so you guys can get a discount. And, and I'd love people to take a look um, uh, and to get engaged, uh, just is, I hope, a, a tool and set of tools to you know get you started in your journey to start feeding your brain and start thinking about how to best take care of depression and how food can be a part of that. Epic, yeah. Now we'll definitely put all that kind of stuff on the uh, podcast notes and stuff. Drew, honestly, um, this has been amazing. Uh, as always, love your vibe, love your humor, love the humility that you bring to the profession, but also this crazy world of being in the media and juggling that with a proper clinical career and, you know, talking about food, which is very niche and actually, you know, being a champion for change in, in, in terms of the appreciation of nutrition and lifestyle uh, in, in conventional medicine, um, which I don't like. I don't like the word conventional medicine. It's just medicine. It's just medicine. And, it, you know, I think the more that we can, you know, as you do a good job, kind of bring it under one house, realize that we have a lot of partners in this who aren't necessarily physicians, um, who are other advocates in healthcare, you know, our colleagues in nursing and in dietetics and in, uh, and in coaching. And that, that, you know, we have a, the UK and the US has a massive mental health care problem. And, and, that you know, we, we both don't want to hold out for some Hail Mary microbiome, ketamine, psilocybin, crazy whatever that, that you know that, that that cures everyone from everything. Um, when we know that there are lots of interventions that we can help people with to feel better, and we have those now, and uh, and that food's one of those. So.
Um, Absolutely. I'd love to, if you have any thoughts on any of the new developments in psychiatry, namely intermittent fasting, psychedelic treatments, um, anything wacky and wonderful to do with uh, microbial and psychobiotics and stuff, um, let me know, man. I'm sure the listeners would love to hear about it, and we'll jump on the podcast. I think we'll, we should we should we should schedule a follow up podcast for a few months from now. We can talk about that. But I think that that we 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 definitely are going to learn a lot about um, ketamine. That is a very exciting treatment, but also a treatment that has a lot of limitations to it. Um, but you know, at least exciting news that when people are acutely suicidal their medicines that look like can take those suicidal thoughts away that do take those suicidal thoughts away for some patients within hours i mean that's just you know that that's a radical concept when you think about something like psilocybin just got granted um a special status by the fda um, as an emergent treatment something that's going into i think phase two trials now um there's a lot to learn um uh, and a lot we are learning but, you know, I think the good news for people, especially anyone listening who's struggling with their mental health, is, you know, there's both the core workhouse stuff that, that should work, right, of, of better lifestyle, responsible pharmacology, good psychotherapy. And then it's the human brain. Like, we don't understand it yet. And there's, it, it's the tip of the iceberg, but we are rapidly, rapidly gaining um, ground and you know new exciting things are going to come out of that for all of us to, to benefit ourselves and, and humanity's mental health and that's that that's a very you know that's in some ways why I became a psychiatrist is like you realized okay over it, it's gonna be a it's gonna be going off here for the next like 20 to 50 years when it comes to understanding brain health and uh, um, and, and it's and we'll we'll keep up as long as we can. <laughs> I want to know what brain foods that you're going to eat today, Rupi. Uh, that's what I want to know. I want you to leave. I want you to leave your listeners with a brain food prescription. Well, mine's all about fiber right now, man. Um, so the mechanisms behind nurturing your microbiota with uh, different types of fibers. Um, I find absolutely astounding the way your microbes can create different chemicals. They can create them, you know, changes in how you digest food and how that actually communicates with your cognitive functioning. Um, so trying a different type of bean, pulse or lentil, just getting into the habit of actually introducing that into your diet, maybe once a week. If you already do that, maybe twice a week. I personally have one of those things on a daily basis. Like I already had my lentils in the morning because uh, I had leftovers this morning. So for me, like uh, it's all about the microbiota and trying to use what we have right now to, um, to, to, to nurture and encourage it. And then the advent for psychobiotics, I think is, um, it's strong uh, to the point where I, I'm going to start taking a regular kefir drink in the morning um, just because A, I can, uh, and B, it's actually very affordable, particularly if it's you... And, and from a probiotic standpoint, it's better than anything else. So all of the smoothies in Eat Complete use kefir. If you look at the... I mean, there's not a ton of science of how much colony foreign units are in yogurt and in kefir, a few studies. But kefir both has more types of bacteria, live bacteria in there. But you know, some of these has up to a trillion CFUs in a serving of kefir. When you can, you can plan like, you know, a, a good probiotic is what, 50 billion? So, yeah. 
you're talking like 10 to 20 times more. And, you know, it just, to me, it feels a little more, um, less space agey and more like real traditional diet that no one's ever taken probiotics before. We, we didn't, we didn't even have a vitamin identified until 1912, right? This is all new stuff supplements, but people have been, you know, if you look at, I love, you look at the kefirs and the yogurts, you know, one of the, a lot of the, you know, kind of fancier ones, they have this like Bulgarian, like ancient, you know, it's like ancient bacteria from Bulgaria is the key. And it's like, yeah, it kind of is the key. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's been around forever. So honestly, there was um, an episode of uh, Rick Stein where he travels from Venice to Istanbul. And I think he goes through, it's either Turkey or it might be Bulgaria. And he basically goes and visits like some goat herders and they serve him yeah. a cheese that's made in the intestines of a goat. And it's like, it sounds disgusting and it didn't look great but this is how this ancient tribe of people have been living for hundreds of hundreds of years and this is the this is the, this is the probiotic man it, it was one of my favorite moments on our farm two or three years ago uh, we leased some lactating goats and so like these are like pregnant goats basically goats had just given birth that uh, we we took them to our farm and milked them every morning and made goat cheese and 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 it's how, like, with all the anti-dairy movement, I was just, I don't know why, I got curious. And, boy, it's hard. When you, like, spend time with goats and milk them and see, like, their udders kind of fit perfectly in our hands and that, you know, making goat cheese literally is, like, taking milk, squirting in some lemon juice, letting it curdle, and then running it through a cheesecloth, and that's it. And it's, like, the most delicious stuff, you know, cheese that you've had. It's it just... um it's really, uh, to me, very fulfilling and kind of fascinating, but also feels just very, like, anciently human, right? Of, of, but that, that fermentation has always been a part of, of human existence. It's, all, you know, the original way that we stored food. And so, so I, but, you know, I ask you for your brain food prescription for your audience. So, um, Dr. Rupi's audience, what I hear him saying, and I suspect you know this is Lentils, which is like that is if it's going to be a brain food that Rupi is going to represent in the animated film Brain Food, it's going to be the lentil because your, your lentil game is seriously strong. Your lentil and chickpea and bean game is really strong, and that's a huge food category, especially you know, we think about complication, time, and money. Super simple, super inexpensive, right? Uh, and small red beans are the red beans with the most antioxidants, according to the USDA. So if you need some special, you know, sound bite about your meal, you can make small red beans. Um, and then I hear you pulling out the kefir. And I think everybody's listening today. You should make a commitment right now, come hell or high water, or if it's late at night tomorrow, you're going to have some lentils and you're going to have some kefir and you're going to dedicate them to Dr. Rupi and the doctor's kitchen, all his good work. Okay. So if you're going to start with a spice, a singular spice, I would say fennel seed. Oh, spice mix, yeah. So spice, so singular spice, I would say fennel. Uh, spice mix, I would say barat. Um, barat spelled B-H-A-R-A-T. It's almost like um, uh, a mix between Russell Hanout and garam masala. It's like a beautiful spice mix with like cinnamon, clove, cumin, um, but there's something quite distinct about it. It's not quite Russell Hanout and it's not quite Garam Masala. There's something else going on about it. And um, I find it delicious. And that that will change your brain. It will change the way you think about spices because you can 
you can put that on whitefish, you can do it lentils in it, you can make a broth with it. It's, it's very, very versatile. We say that's the, the, the rule of kale. All my, we launched you know, National Kale Day here in America about seven years ago. All my kale shenanigans. And it led to, uh, I wrote Fifty Shades of Kale. They rejected my, my subtitle, Don't Get Rough, Get Roughage. But, uh, <laughs> but, but, the, the, um, but the basic rules of brain food are that you pick foods with nutrient density, which we've talked a lot about on this show, uh, you pick foods with culinary versatility. What you're talking about, you put on your whitefish, you put it on lentils, and you, you pick foods that are locally available, either because you know, you're growing it locally or there's, that's part of like the local food community. But, um, but I, like, I like your brain food prescription, and I really look forward to maybe we can cook some of that up next time we get together. And it's been a real treat being here, getting to spend a little time with you. Uh, and um, uh, and to everybody listening, I really uh, appreciate your time and your attention. I really just hope you hear my encouragement as a psychiatrist. Number one, to take care of your mental health. Number two, to feed your mental health. I've got a new TED Talk coming out. It's all about feeding your mental health really in a conceptual way that it, there's more than food to that, right? That how do you, and if you really just think about it intentionally this week, how do you take care of your mental health? Right? Not just going to grab some beers with your friends, right? but what do you do to build your emotional resilience, to take care of your sleep, to improve your food? How, how do you care for yourself in, around mental health? Um, and, and that there's infinite possibilities there for you. Um, and, uh, and what I find clinically is the more that we attend to and focus on our emotional health and, and, and that of our mental health and emotional health of those around us, just, I think that's how we build stronger connections and communities, and that is the really the only path forward out of this mental health crisis. So it's been a real treat being with you, my brother, and I will uh, look forward to our next conversation. 100%, man. Can't wait. Can't wait. I really, really hope you enjoyed listening to that. As you can tell, despite his incredible intelligence, his accolades, the fact that he's an associate clinical professor, you know, he's just so, so down to earth and just a lovable character. Um, remember, you can follow my guest on Instagram, on Twitter, on YouTube. All the links for his socials are on the website, thedoctorskitchen.com forward slash podcast. Make sure you check those out. Um, and the website is drewramseymd.com. Also, we're going to add a uh, coupon for his Eat to Beat Depression course as well. Again, that will be in the show notes. Please give this a five-star review if you really enjoyed it. To summarize our conversation, quality fats, as I always talk about, are absolutely essential, particularly with regard to omega-3 fatty acids, the long-chain ones that you get from either oily fish or algae sources. And there is a lot of research there that actually demonstrates most of us should be taking it because we tend not to get enough in our diet, even if we do eat oily fish, because there are variable levels of omega-3 fatty acids in different types of fish. Fiber, 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 I'm a big fan of it. You know by now it's uh, nurturing that microbiota and there are multiple multiple uh, ways in which your microbes communicate with your brain and vice versa. So looking after your gut with plenty of different pulses and different types of uh, vegetables, particularly the greens. And the greens are something that obviously Drew is very, very passionate about um, and uh, has uh, an appreciation of a wide variety of different greens beyond just kale, including Swiss chard, cab- Swiss chard, uh, cabbage, um, Brussels sprouts, uh, anything green, get it in your diet. You know it's going to be giving you fiber and the different types of phytonutrients that are 100% 
uh, going to be having some impact on inflammation, which as you should know by now, uh, definitely has causal links with depression. Inflammation, anything that's going to reduce inflammation beyond diet um, is going to include sleep and exercise, two of the most powerful anti-inflammatory um, uh, processes that we can engage in uh, activities. So please uh, think about how you can improve your mental health and actually prevent mental health by looking after those two different lifestyle means. This has been a long podcast. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it and do get in touch. Subscribe to the newsletter, thedoctorskitchen.com and we'll catch you soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.